Welcome to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Kathy and Karen. Today, we will discuss episode four of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. For these podcast episodes, we will first do a drama episode recap and then discuss the culture and history portrayed in the episode. If you're new to the podcast, welcome! Do check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Chasing Dramas and also visit us on our website at ChasingDramas.com. If you like what you hear or have any feedback, reach out to us on any of the platforms we just mentioned. And also, please do leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. It'll definitely help us bring you more content. Today's episode will be rather plot heavy. We left off episode three with maids all squealing about the appearance of Fu Cha Fu Hong. He's an imperial guard, but also the younger brother of the current empress. Naturally, many of the young maids in the palace would love to catch the eye of the handsome Fu Hong. One of the seamstress maids, Jin Xiu, is no different. The episode starts with Jin Xiu falling to the ground in front of Fu Hong as he walks by, hoping that this will be enough for him to notice her. But our main character, Wei Yingluo, promptly grabs Jin Xiu and moves her elsewhere. They get into a bit of an argument because Jin Xiu doesn't care if she needs to become a concubine. She is willing to be one in order to marry the likes of Fu Hong. Yingluo is much more critical of these imperial guards, evidently because of what happened with her sister, and gives off her reasoning as to why men like Fu Hong are not worth it. These guards can have their fun and may not be reprimanded for it. Unfortunately, the maids, aka the women, will most likely pay for it with their lives. Problem is that these harsh words are overheard by Fu Hong himself, who stops Wei Yingluo as she leaves to confront her about what she just said. This is the first time these two interact with each other, but it will most definitely not be the last. We next follow Fu Hong as he heads over to Changchun Palace to visit his sister, the Empress. The moment he walks in to see her uh, holding a locket, he grabs the locket and tosses it out into one of the bushes in the courtyard. This infuriates the Empress, who starts screaming at him for this. The locket belongs to her son who passed away three years ago, Yonglian. While Fu Hong's actions may seem harsh, the point of his visit is to help his sister walk out of her grief. The empress has been grieving the death of her young son ever since he passed away and has neglected her duties as empress since she does not have the willingness or just the energy to manage the palace. She also has developed long-standing frustration against the emperor because she thinks he does not care that their son passed away. After all, she riles that he can have more women and more children, but she cannot. She thinks that he is too cold-hearted, the emperor that is. In my view, this scene already reveals the key underlying difference between the emperor and the empress. They may love each other, but the emperor sees himself first and foremost as the emperor of the Qing dynasty. 
The empress, however, sees herself as a mother and a wife, not the empress. She is hoping for the love and care that normal families or non-royal families can have, but she's not yet realized that the lifestyle she wants will never be in her grasp. Though I will say it is pretty heavy-handed for Fu Hong to just say that it's been three years, get over it. Depression and grief sometimes take an entire lifetime to resolve and should not necessarily be measured by time, so Fu Hong, I will dock you some points on that. But clearly, the Empress would have benefited greatly from having um, a grief counselor or therapist to help her work through her grief. Something of the sort does show up momentarily. After Fu Hong leaves, he runs into Chuen Fei, who is on her way to greet the Empress. He asks her for a favor. Chuen Fei is the consort who has been ill, and this is the first time we see her. She is shown to be very attentive towards the Empress, but not the Emperor. She apparently generally pretends to be ill so as not to spend time with the Emperor. Soon after, a maid enters with tea, but is seen to have been crying. Well, this is when the uh, consort Chuen Fei is with the Empress. When the Empress asks, Chuen Fei steps in to explain that this maid has reached the age of 25, but has not yet been released from the palace. This poor maid's fiancé does not want to marry her uh, anymore because he doesn't want to wait. This news shocks the Empress because she feels terrible that her close maids have been neglected on this front. She, as Empress, should have released this maid so that she could be married. This little show was planned by Fu Hong and enacted out by Chun Fei to help remind the Empress of the mistakes or the things that slip through the cracks when the Empress is not running the palace. Things like releasing maids from the palace when they're of eligible age to be married outside are under the Empress's purview. If she cannot remember such things for her personal maids, what of the other tasks that require her attention in the palace? This also shows us that the Empress is truly benevolent and a kind woman who cares about her subjects and staff, something that we have not been too used to from our last uh, palace drama. The Empress recognizes that she needs to improve and also finally takes a look at the box that Fu Hong brought from the Emperor earlier on to help the Empress step out of her stupor. She opens the box to find a decree written by the Emperor himself the first year he ascended the throne. He named Yonglian, their son, the Crown Prince of the Qing Dynasty, or Taizi. This realization that the emperor placed so much value onto their son came as an incredible shock to the empress. She immediately bursts into tears and recognizes that she has been wrong. She thought that the emperor did not care about their son, but with this decree, she realized that in fact, he did. Enough to pronounce him, their son, as the next emperor. Qianlong, or the emperor, did not lose only a son, but a successor as well. The empress now understands that she wanted the emperor to grieve the same way she does, but the emperor had his own way of grieving, and also that he needs to rule 
an empire was. She was like, I'm just a mother first. She feels ashamed that she has not been taking her duties as empress seriously and resolves to step up. The next day, we see the empress undergo a pretty dramatic transformation. Okay, maybe not overly dramatic, but I thought it was pretty different. I was like, yes, finally, she's ready to, I don't know, kick some ass. <laughs> you know, the thought that came to my mind when I saw this is we're going to go back to Zhen Huanzhuan or Empresses in the Palace. When she stepped forward and was like, I'm going to be the Empress. I was like, oh, you are now Niu Hulu, <laughs> which is the joke in uh, Empresses in the Palace. Definitely watch that drama, listen to our podcast so that uh, this makes sense. The ladies of the palace are called to Qing'an or greet the empress. It seems like the empress has not been present in many of these greetings in the past or recent past. So the group of ladies are quite surprised when she does show up. And today she looks regal and composed, just how one expects an empress to act and look. The person most displeased to see this, of course, is Gao Guifei or royal consort Gao to note, in attendance today, we also have Xianfei, Chunfei, Jiaping, the newly pregnant Yu Guiren, we also have Shu Guiren, and a few others. So everyone is here. In front of the concubines, she gives out her orders as empress. Gao Guifei, though, cannot help but to rebuke the empress's orders. Namely, the fact that Yi Pin, who committed suicide, is to be buried respectfully. Concubines who commit suicide is tantamount to a crime itself, and generally should have their families punished, not given a proper burial. But the Empress says that she announced Yi Pin's death as succumbing to illness. Who said anything about suicide? She then presses the rest of the ladies. Who do they agree with? Her, the Empress, or Gao Guifei? All of the ladies voice their agreement with the Empress, much to the fury of Gao Guifei, who fumes about it back at her own palace with Jia Pin at her side. There's so many parallels to Jin Huanzhuan or Empresses in the Palace between Gao Guifei and Hua Fei and Jia Pin with Cao Guiren. But um, <laughs> Gao is kind of just not on the same level as Huafei. Uh, Gao Guifei is just doing her own thing and being mad. And uh, the Empress is being like serene and firm. And I was like, yes, girl, please, please, please just continue with this. You're on a roll. After this court greeting, the drama does take a few moments for Chunfei to interact with Xianfei so that we get a sense of the characters of these two women. Long story short is that Xianfei is known throughout the palace for her kindness and does not like to choose sides between the empress or anyone else. She likes to stay in her own lane and spends most of her time focused on the emperor. Chunfei, on the other hand, is quite the mystery. Xianfei does not fully understand what her motivation or drive is in the palace, as she doesn't pay much attention to the emperor, but does focus on the empress a lot. When asked further, Chunfei skillfully deflects the question before the two-part ways. She will remain a mystery for quite a bit longer, 
For those of you who haven't seen the drama, take a look at the interaction between Fu Hong and Chun Fei in this episode. It's very, very brief, but um, something to ponder upon um, as we continue to watch the drama. We spend most of the episode with the powerful ladies in the palace, and now we close off episode four by returning to the maids. Ling Long is a maid that consistently wants to rid the palace of Ying Luo since she's jealous of Ying Luo. She lets slip to Gao Guifei's maid that it was Ying Luo that notified Yu Guiren of the poison in the new loquat leaves or Pi Ye in prior episodes. This immediately spells trouble for Ying Luo, as that night she is dragged off to Chu Xiu Gong where Gao Guifei awaits her. But Ying Luo is quick thinking enough that she recognized she may be in trouble and therefore feigns to have some mental disabilities in front of both Gao Guifei and Jia Pin when questioned about the Pi Pa Ye or the loquat leaves. She speaks extremely loudly and just acts like uh, someone who is not right in the head. She even asks for the bowl of lotus rice balls in Gao Guifei's hands or she's like, I've never eaten anything like that before. The group of ladies are so shocked to see how weird this girl is behaving. And so Gao Guifei gifts the bowl to Ying Luo and also another six bowls. Ying Luo is able to leave with the seven bowls to finish, but at least Ying Luo has her life. The group thinks that because Ying Luo is probably not mentally well, that she wasn't planning on helping Yu Guiren uh, for real, rather that it was just a fluke. And that is it for episode four from a plot recap perspective. Let's now move on to some history. The first piece of history is to discuss the Zheng Da Guangming Bian and the selection of the crown prince. This is the revelation in episode four that finally made the empress realize that her husband truly loved their son. So I know that it was like quite quick in the drama, so I want to spend some time to discuss what this all means. The Zheng Da Guangming Bian, or in my translation, the righteous and bright plaque, is placed squarely above the throne in Qianxinggong or the Palace of Heavenly Purity in the Forbidden Palace in Beijing. It is the largest of the three halls in the inner court and served as the emperor's audience hall during the Qing Dynasty. In the Qing Dynasty, starting at the end of the reign of Emperor Yongzheng, the Qing emperors would secretly place an imperial edict behind the Zheng Da Guangming Bian, or Righteous and Bright Plaque. This imperial edict clearly stated the heir and successor to the Qing Empire. There were two copies of this edict, one hidden behind the plaque and one that was with the emperor at all times. When the emperor died, the ministers would concurrently take the hidden edict from behind the plaque and the edict carried by the emperor to compare the contents. Once confirmed of the validity of the imperial edict, basically making sure that the two had the same contents, the ministers would declare the new emperor. The reason for this action is because Emperor Yongzheng himself, the victor of a 
decades-long bloody struggle to seize the throne while his father was alive, wanted to avoid the usual political plotting, securing of factions, and, quite frankly, Heron, infighting that was all too familiar to him. Let me remind listeners that the Qing Dynasty did not have the custom of declaring the crown prince or um, declaring a taizi as the son of the empress. That custom was called li di li zhang, or the declaring of the crown prince as the firstborn son from the empress. He was to be called taizi. Let's recall the drama Royal Nirvana. The crown prince was not the eldest of the emperor's sons, but he was born to the empress, so he was crowned taizi, or the crown prince. During the reign of Emperor Kangxi, Yongzheng's father, he did crown the second prince, who was the empress's son, as crown prince. However, that crown prince disappointed his father so much that he was deposed of his title twice. Without a crown prince, the rest of Kangxi's sons plotted for the throne. This, of course, resulted in Jiuzi Duodi, or the Nine Lords' War. To the victor, the spoils, and Yongzheng, in the end, imprisoned or killed many of his brothers. We discussed this much more at length in our Empresses in the Palace series, so if you're interested, please go check that out. To avoid this type of political struggle, Emperor Yongzheng decided that in his lifetime, he would never select a crown prince while he was alive. The new emperor would only be revealed after his death. This is how our current emperor in the drama Qianlong came to rule. The custom of secretly hiding an imperial edict with the selection of the heir lasted for four Qing dynasty emperors. So it was Qianlong, Xiaqing, Gaoguang, and Xianfeng. Emperor Xianfeng, who died in 1861, only had one son, and the emperors Tongzhi and Guangxu had no sons, so there was no more need to hide an imperial edict. Back to this drama. The empress finally realizes how much the emperor loved their child when she saw that he placed their son Yonglian's name as heir behind the Zheng Da Guangming Bian. The emperor was in his prime, and he didn't have to clearly state an heir, but he did so, showing the empress and us, the audience, that he did truly love his son and have high hopes for their son. This is true to history. Emperor Qianlong did place the hidden edict behind the plaque in 1736, the first full year of his reign. As a reminder, he ascended the throne in 1735. Qianlong and Empress Fu Cha's son, Yonglian, died in 1738 when the boy was nine years old. The emperor was deeply distraught and saddened by this news. The wording of the edict is exactly as was shown in the drama, so kudos to the show for being able to replicate that. Although, I think if they didn't, it would have been like, why are you making this up? However, unlike in the drama, the edict was declared when Yonglian died. He was buried in accordance with the customs of a crown prince, and his posthumous name is of a crown prince. 35 years later, in 1773, Emperor Tianlong placed another hidden edict behind the plaque. And that wasn't taken out until the year he abdicated in 1795. This 
decree or edict behind the plaque is generally a plot point for a lot of these types of uh, Qing Dynasty dramas, or they've also been brought to other dramas where the emperor hid uh, his will or his right for succession somewhere. And there's a lot of fighting about it. Anyways, that was a lot of talk about successors and heirs. Let's move on to costumes. Today, I want to introduce a discussion on the shawl capes because we finally have all of the main female concubines in one scene. Why I say introduce is because we'll see different examples throughout the drama. So we'll highlight them as we see them. The focus is on episode four, the scene where all of the ladies greet the empress. The most extravagant one is, of course, the one that we see noble consort Gao or Gao Guifei uh, wearing a pearl shawl or cape. We'll see this pearl shawl show up a few times, but I couldn't take my eyes off of it today uh, during this episode, even though you're just like, oh, Gao Guifei, please leave the empress alone. The purpose of this pearl shawl is to showcase the lavish and extravagant lifestyle that Gao Guifei lives. She is the only one in the drama to wear this. This costume draws heavily from history, but not on the exact time period. Empress Dowager Cixi, the infamous Cixi, who effectively ruled, and you could say ruined, the Qing Dynasty for 47 years from 1861 until her death in 1908, loved pearls. She, like, really, really loved pearls. There are surviving photos of the Empress Dowager wearing variations of pearls. From bangles to earrings to shawls, pearls were everywhere. She had a pearl shawl which served as the inspiration for the one we see in this drama. Definitely look it up because it's quite cool to see. Now, I don't really know how many pearls make up the shawl we see in the drama, but one uh, estimate I saw for the one worn by Empress Dowager Cixi is to be around 3,500 pearls. There's apparently one pearl dress that consists of 32,000 pearls. That is crazy and basically a priceless artifact. The funny thing is, when the drama first aired, everyone was like, uh, why is Gao Guifei wearing either a pearl fishnet or uh, the same shawl that Zhu Bajie or the pig wore in Xiuji or Journey to the West? Because there was, I now remember the scene where he's wearing something like this. It is certainly a little out of place with the other ladies of the palace, but hey, she wears what she wants, and I thought it was really gorgeous. I'm still chuckling about the pig reference because I remember watching the episode when I was younger, and I was like, wow, this resemblance is pretty uncanny. <laughs> well, I was doing research for this episode, especially on this pearl cape. The articles are like, um, oh, you mean the pig shawl, right? <laughs> that was quite funny. And lastly for today, I want to discuss something called Yajin, or my translation is a clothes holder or suppressor. I know it's a terrible translation. If we have any fashionistas who can help correct me, I'd be very grateful. So take a look at episode four when Consort Chun and Consort Xian are having a conversation while walking. 
On the right, beneath their collars, they each have a jade accessory dangling from the second knot of their garment. That accessory is the yajin. They are accessories that basically hold the woman's clothes in place or to protect the garment from flailing if there is wind. The reason is because traditionally, women's clothes weren't really form-fitting and honestly pretty loose. The accessory essentially prevented the clothes from fluttering around too much in the wind. Now, with this information, look at all of the women, especially the concubines in the palace. They all have a ya jin dangling on the right side. Ya jin were first used during the Tang Dynasty, so think 7th century AD, and of course widely used in the Ming and Qing Dynasties. Typically, the ya jin um, was comprised of three parts during the Qing Dynasty for Manchu women. The top section typically contained a silver hook or a silk knot that can neatly hang from the second knot of the garment. The middle section is the main accessory. It has to be relatively heavy so that it can keep the garment flat. This should be made, or this could be made, of jade, ivory, carnelian, silver, gold, etc. The bottom section is then typically a tassel or maybe a small bell. In the drama, the empress uses her Buddhist beads as her yajin, which is also fine. It's relatively rare to see this shown in dramas. We didn't see it in Empresses in the Palace, so kudos to this drama for this accurate depiction. If you see Ruyi Zhuan or Ruyi's Love in the Palace, the ladies also do have this yajin. The maids also have a version of this, so while you're watching the episode, take a look at the difference between what each of the ladies wear, whether it is Hui Yingluo or, uh, for example, Chunfei or Xianfei or the Empress, they all have a variation of this Yajin. And that is it for today's episode. Hope you guys learned something. Before we close off, I do just want to highlight a few things. One is that we have also published our July drama updates podcast episode. We are going to start publishing probably monthly uh, podcast episodes just on the drama updates that are happening for Chinese dramas. If you have any areas of focus that you guys would like us to turn our attention to, let us know. Otherwise, we're just going to be providing updates on dramas and actors and actresses that we care about. Also, I am still figuring out what intro music I want to learn on the Zither to play for this drama. So if you have any thoughts on a piece of music for the drama in particular, do let me know. I do have to spend some time learning it, so please excuse the delay. For those of you that are looking for a place to watch Chinese dramas, please do check out our sponsor, Jubao TV. They have a number of Chinese dramas and movies with English subtitles to watch for free. To access the channel online, you can type in XUMO or ZUMO on your browser. If you are watching it on TV, you can watch it for free again on Xfinity or Cox Contour, as well as Sling TV. Thank you all so much for listening. We will catch you in the next episode.